The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you, this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. This callous coward with a gun in his hand shot a cop in the head tonight. My heart grieves for Detective Sean Souter. It's no way that I would think if you're a good partner that you're going to lose sight of me. Now, if they thought at the smallest level that it involved police officers tied to their case, there's no way they would have given that case back. Yeah, listen, after a case gets 72 hours old, it gets cold. If you don't do something in 72 hours, you really have a problem. Welcome back to the Land of the Unsolved, the podcast that explores both the evidence and the politics of unsolved cases. As we told you in the last episode, we are currently investigating a 22-year-old cold case that remains not just unsolved, but shrouded in mystery. But while we're working on it, we wanted to talk about another case that is in part related to our most recent investigation into the mysterious death of Detective Sean Souter. As we have discussed, Souter was shot in the head in a West Baltimore alley with his own gun. Police initially raised the specter of a lone black gunman, but later that evidence fell apart. And now with the case gone cold, we are all waiting for the report from the Independent Review Board, a group of former detectives and police consultants who are examining the case. But in the meantime, while we're working on this case and others, Tay and I were struck by how unusual it is for a case of an allegedly murdered police officer to go unsolved. In fact, it's such a rare occurrence that we had to dig into archives to find a case that even remotely resembles suitors. We had to go back 50 years to a case involving a cop that remains a mystery to this day, and in many ways is at least circumstantially as bizarre as suitors. As we said on our podcast, Stephen and I have written several books on policing, and it's a story from one of those books, The Book of Cop, we will be focusing on today. So Stephen, tell me about the case and why it's relevant to our story. Well, number one, this story revolves around the death of a detective in the Baltimore Police Department in 1969. That's the first thing. Number two is a death that remains completely shrouded in mystery. Uh, there has This case has never been closed. And number three, what makes it really interesting is, is the manner in which this police officer died, not from getting shot or blunt force trauma or any of the thing, ways that people are usually murdered in Baltimore, but instead he was poisoned. That is a highly unusual yeah. way to murder someone. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I can say I can't think of a, a time in recent memory where I've heard of a police officer being poisoned. Right. So can you talk about some of the strange circumstances that surrounded this man's yeah, death? Yeah, well, here's the, here's the number one thing. Um, he, he died from poisoning, but to say he was poisoned is, is what has never been really completely figured out. In other mm-hmm. words, he died from drinking radiator fluid, basically. But he... No one was really ever able to determine how that got into his system or why. There were tons of rumors, tons of circumstantial evidence that pointed in multi, multiple directions. But what made this case, I think, somewhat, um, you know, relatively comparable to suitors is, is the fact that nothing really adds up in one way or another. The case, so you're saying there's nothing really conclusive to either point to a suicide or a homicide? It's really hard to tell. And there's a whole other explanation you'll hear when we go through the case that is even more uh, strange, that it wasn't suicide or murder, but something even stranger. And that the motive behind what happened to him uh, is almost like something that you can't even conceive of that a person would do. Uh, that, and, and that's why I think this case is interesting and why I wanted to bring this case up. Because you know we don't just talk about unsolved murders. We talk about the politics and also some of the things you encounter in terms of human behavior when someone dies in mysterious circumstances. This case is a good example of that because it, this isn't just a meditation upon murder where there's a motive or someone's trying to kill someone. This is a look into the psyche of a human being mm-hmm. and wondering... The things that go on in a person's mind, which which is all sort of we can't see, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we can look at evidence and facts, but we don't know how a person comes to the calculus. Right. I'm going to kill someone, or even I'm going to kill myself. Right. You which can't of course, read their heart. which of course is is what drives the suitor case, right? What was he thinking? Why was he there? You know, was he distraught over testimony? Well, this is the same thing with this case. It's like the impenetrable aspect of the mind is what is the great mystery in this case. Not the evidence, but what goes on inside someone's head that's almost unknowable to us. Mm-hmm. You know, And so that's why I thought this case was interesting because this case literally remains open. It is what is called undetermined. I think you know a little bit about that. Absolutely. And undetermined death is a category that the medical examiner uses when the uh, the manner of death cannot be determined completely, whether it be homicide, mm-hmm. suicide, or accident. Or natural when, causes. Or natural causes. When there's a place of uh, where there can't be a conclusion drawn, where no manner of death can be ruled out completely, right. many times Absolutely. someone is placed in the category of undetermined. And that's what this case is. And, you know, again, Again, almost every police involved death that is mysterious has been solved. There are two cases that have not been solved. The one we're about to read about and the detective suitor. Now, of course, as we said before, there's a report coming out and maybe they'll tell us what happened. One other note, um, this case was written uh, by you and me from the notes of Stephen Tabling, written in his voice, which you'll be reading. And the man who was a victim or whatever we don't know uh steven didn't want his name used you know because of his family so there won't he won't be named but if you google it you might be able to find it out so it's not mysterious it was just a preference of steven tabling who was one of the lead investigators on the case right i I wanted to know if there's any way you can uh, clue in the audience on what that third manner of death is if it's not homicide and it's not suicide what could be the possible third manner well, in this case, what we're talking about mm-hmm. would be self-inflicted, right. but not. But the thing is, it's self-inflicted, but not suicide. Mm-hmm. That's why this case is so strange. Um, you know, I want people to hear it so they'll listen to the story, but not self-inflicted in the sense that I want to kill myself, but self-inflicted, I want to prove something to the people around me, a story I've made up about myself that I want other people to know. Great. Well, let's get started. Okay. 
Would a man intentionally poison himself? Would he knowingly drink a toxic substance that would literally turn his esophagus and stomach lining into mush? Is it possible that a living human being, say he was a bit delusional, choose a slow, painful, and excruciating death? And what does it say about human nature if indeed a person would intentionally inflict self-harm for reasons that are completely inexplicable? What if it was a cop who did it? A Baltimore police detective who drank a poisonous substance either knowingly or unwittingly. A young man who became so sick he ended up in a coma and whose friends and relatives believed he might have been the victim of foul play, even though there was almost no evidence to prove it. It's a question I've asked myself on occasion when I think about a strange case that involved the death of a police officer nearly 50 years ago, which remains a mystery. An investigation that in many ways poses vexing questions, not just about crime, but people. An unsolved case involving the sudden death of an otherwise healthy police detective. The case started with a phone call to homicide, a supervisor reporting to us that one of his police detectives was in a coma in the intensive care unit. He was concerned the officer was a victim of foul play. Even worse, he told us the doctors didn't think the young man was going to survive, and they didn't know why he was dying. He was real sick before he was admitted, throwing up, dizzy and confused, said the supervisor. His friend said he had a couple of beers, and that's when he started feeling sick. And then he just passed out. What, I wondered, could put a young detective in the hospital without any obvious explanation? What type of affliction could he have contracted that doctors could not yet diagnose? Could he be one of the many cops I've encountered in my career that succumbed to the temptations of drug abuse and had simply drunk himself to near death? Had he come down with some mysterious and otherwise unidentifiable disease? And the most terrifying prospect of all, was his affliction something truly mysterious beyond our immediate grasp? Worse yet, the man who could most likely tell me was unconscious and fighting for his life in the ICU. So as we drove to the hospital, my mind was churning. It's my own peculiar process of mental preparation, mulling over what I knew, searching for possible lines of investigation that could explain the facts. What transformed a relatively healthy young man into a comatose vegetable? What were the possible scenarios that could explain how a presumably disease-free detective would wind up on his deathbed? When we arrived at Union Memorial, the victim had a contingent of relatives staked outside the ICU unit, among them several cousins, a brother, and his wife. We spoke briefly to the doctor. He told us the prognosis was grim. He didn't think the detective would regain consciousness. And the physician speculated, given his symptoms, that he might have somehow imbibed poison. 
He didn't know what kind of poison, but the fact that an otherwise healthy man was dying in the ICU without any other signs of disease, poison seemed to be the only logical explanation. So now we had quite a dilemma, the kind of case that makes the run-of-the-mill violent homicide look simple. Shooting someone in the head is the preferred method of murder in Baltimore. It's an act that usually produces a significant amount of physical evidence. But finding the means and opportunity to deliver poison to an unwitting man, to pick out a notably lethal chemical and administer it in doses that would ultimately kill him, that was the work of a different kind of killer. A methodical and determined sociopath. Someone willing to go to great and unusual lengths to kill, and even more extreme measures to conceal their role in it. But that scenario seemed unlikely, given the city's penchant for a more personalized form of vengeance. Baltimore, also known as Mobtown, is the land of point-and-shoot murder. When people want to kill, they are hardly shy about it. Blunt force trauma, stabbings, the random shot to the head. That's how the killers of Baltimore get it done, and that's what I was accustomed to investigating. But the devious and seemingly discreet task of stealthily filling someone's body with a lethal poison is a quite different method of killing. It takes intricate planning, a devious mind, and lots of strategic thinking. It's a crime requiring acute duplicity. Still, I don't know if the poisoning was intentional or accidental. In fact, I didn't even have a clue as to exactly what was killing him. The doctors at Union Memorial had flushed his kidneys to save his life. Consequently, there was little left of whatever was prompting his organs to shut down. Making matters worse were rumors that were spreading throughout the department like wildfire. Officers who believed the detective had been working vice on the block and had dug up some dirt on his superiors. It wasn't clear what kind of dirt, but the story was he was fed a spiked drink nightly to keep him quiet. A prolonged murder plot that after two weeks of toxic cocktails did him in. I didn't have any evidence that tale was true. All I knew was that a young man was dying, and we didn't know why. So we focused on his relatives in search of clues. His daughter was distraught and inconsolable. So was his wife. Both weren't in good enough psychological shape to talk to us at the hospital. But as we gathered names and addresses of the relatives and assorted friends gathered at his bedside, one of his fellow officers asked if he could speak with me privately. So we stepped outside the detective's crowded hospital room. A few days before he got sick, he was telling everybody there was a $50,000 contract on his life. The detective whispered in the hallway. When he got here, just before he passed out, he was still talking about it. 
I asked, do you have any information as to who that might be? No, sir, he responded. It was the first I'd heard of it. It was a whopper of a clue, a critical piece of information that momentarily turned the case of a mysterious illness into a homicide investigation. In a sense, it made the probe even more daunting and critical. The possibility of a contract on a cop's life raised the stakes. So I called his supervisor to obtain more details. Yeah, he said he was getting death threats and that one of his perps was out to get him, his supervisor told us. It seemed weird, but he kept telling us someone wanted him dead. Is that true, I asked. No way, the supervisor replied. Not as far as I know, truthfully, he added. I can't think of another detective who worked more routine cases and would be less likely to be in trouble. I mean, he staked out a few illegal lotteries and made some minor arrests, nothing that would put him in that sort of bind. In fact, I spoke with another supervisor who had intimate knowledge of his casework. He told me the detective rarely worked narcotics, which is a dangerous beat that often entails interacting with violent suspects. Instead, his primary assignment had been low-level investigations of illegal gambling, a light caseload marked by small-time busts. Most important, his supervisors assured me his arrest record didn't involve enough high-level suspects to warrant threats. In other words, he was more likely telling tall tales. And so I was faced with a new dilemma, a quandary that returned me to my initial query about the vagaries of human nature. Why would someone fabricate something as serious as death threats? Believe me, I have some experience with existential threats. Years ago, a murder suspect threatened to kill me in open court. There was an officer stationed outside my house for weeks. My family was terrified, my eldest daughter traumatized, so it's not something I take lightly. But in this case, I couldn't find any evidence it was true. And if he was making this up, what was his motive? And how far was he willing to go to turn fiction into fact? All these questions became more critical when we sat down with his wife. Initially, she simply recounted the painful details of the progression of her husband's apparent illness. How he had drunk a few beers, then slumped down on the couch. How he couldn't stand up and became dizzy and disoriented. How he vomited and then complained of severe stomach pains. How she panicked and called one of his friends to take him to the hospital. And then she said something that piqued my curiosity. He was fine, she told me, until he went out and started working on the car. Car? Where? I asked. 
in the garage. And when he was finished, you said he started getting sick? Yes, she replied. He was dizzy and said his stomach was hurting. He could barely stand. That's why we took him to the hospital. Do you know what he was doing with the car? Repair work or something, I asked. I don't. I heard the trunk open and close. That's it. And that was the last thing he had done before he got sick? Yes, yeah, she said. After that, he started throwing up. It wasn't a major clue, but it was something. It gave me a starting point, a time when he was functional and a time when he was not. When she finished, we asked her if we could take a look at the car. She gave us the keys and we headed towards the spot where the young and perhaps troubled detective spent his last healthy minutes on earth. The first thing we did was open the trunk. It was our initial, and up until then, only lead. Perhaps something inside would explain the bizarre sequence of events that up until now seemed inexplicable. Something that could shed a little light on what occurred before he was hospitalized. And thankfully, when I turned the key and opened the hatch of his 1971 Chevy Impala, we encountered the first clue as to what might have transformed a healthy man into a corpse in a matter of hours. Buried under a pile of rags was a partially open bottle of antifreeze. It was half full, the cap was loose, and some of the fluid had seeped into a rag stuffed into the nozzle. But what did it mean? Well, maybe nothing. A poorly stored bottle of antifreeze is hardly a smoking gun. Maybe the detective was just topping off his radiator as he sipped a beer. A perfectly normal American ritual. But there was a pattern in the set of coincidences culminating in the leaking container of solvent buried in the trunk. A Baltimore police detective was dying for no apparent reason from a sudden onset of a mortal illness that no one could explain, and the doctor seemed confident that poison was the cause. And now I was staring at a half-empty bottle of antifreeze. Of course, at that point, I didn't have any proof that he had antifreeze in his system. But after picking up that bottle and examining it, the so-called bells of interconnectedness started to ring in my head. Meaning, once distinctive and seemingly unrelated facts began to link together to form a plausible theory. To advance the hunch that was starting to gel in my mind, I examined the radiator itself. Was it empty or was it full? Had he recently topped it off or was it instead in need of fluid? We measured and found it was roughly three quarters full. Not a solid clue, but another piece of evidence suggesting the missing fluid hadn't necessarily ended up inside a radiator. Logic dictates that if he had just opened up a bottle of radiator fluid, it would end up in the tank. 
not irrefutable evidence, a partially empty radiator and a half full bottle of fluid, but useful. Next, we checked back with the doctor. His prognosis, death was imminent. So I asked, could he check the detective for traces of the active ingredient in radiator fluid, ethylene glycol? No, I can't do that because as I told you, we flushed his kidneys, he said. We'll have to wait until the autopsy toxicology. So like many cases, we had a few clues and a hunch, but nothing conclusive. The less than full bottle of antifreeze could indicate that he drank it, but maybe he simply poured it down a drain. A half-empty radiator certainly could bolster the theory the fluid ended up somewhere other than where it belonged, but all of the clues were ambiguous. Not a single fact pointed towards a definitive theory, just circumstantial evidence bolstered by a vague set of motives. So like many cops, I turned to my own personal methodology to help. One of several philosophies of investigation I used to piece together ambiguous facts and conflicting evidence into a cohesive set of assumptions. In this case, the postulate known as Occam's razor. Occam's razor is a basic rule of logic formulated by William of Occam, a 12th century theologian and scholar. His concept was simple, the least complicated solution to a problem, the approach with the smallest set of variables, is usually correct. It's an axiom generally applied to scientific experimentation, but a methodology I found useful for organizing a set of facts gathered during a criminal investigation. Especially when evidence appeared inherently illogical and contradictory. Of course, I always kept in mind the converse to Occam's razor, the law of entropy, also known as the second law of thermodynamics. It means that nature tends towards disorder. That is, things eventually fall apart. Or inevitably, the most efficacious and seemingly orderly investigation can descend into dead ends and irreconcilable leads in a matter of minutes. Both modes of analysis seem to be relevant in this case, because when the doctor told me the detective had, in fact, died, all I had to go on was a half-empty bottle of radiator fluid and a half-baked theory about a man who might have drunk it. So let's apply Occam's razor to the evidence at hand. Let's test it against two distinctly different scenarios that were both plausible based on the evidence. Scenario 1. The detective drank radiator fluid to poison himself intentionally. Scenario 1 involves a cop who potentially suffers from either a delusion of grandeur or an insurmountable insecurity. That same cop tries to convince his peers of imminent peril. However, his story gains little traction according to his supervisors so he decides to inflict just enough self-harm to make the case. His method? Poison. 
Maybe he does some research and reads about the effect radiator fluid has on the body. Perhaps he knows the active ingredient can cause some dramatic symptoms, including vomiting, dizziness, and headaches. And maybe he learns that there's an antidote for it, namely consuming lots of alcohol. And so, with a little bit of knowledge and a single purchase of a relatively inexpensive household material, he's secured a safe way to stage a dramatic event to prove his police work is just as dangerous as he asserts. It's a simple, albeit troubling, explanation based on the evidence at hand. He had access to the poison, he had the motivation, and the opportunity. Now let's examine scenario two. Someone else we had yet to identify, for reasons yet unknown, decided to poison the detective unbeknownst to him. From an evidentiary perspective, there was no indication among the assortment of relatives and colleagues we spoke to anyone was out to get him. In fact, we administered lie detector tests to 16 people who were either related or close associates with him just to ascertain if anyone in his immediate circle had a motive or opportunity to administer the poison surreptitiously. everyone passed. We also learned he was having problems with his wife, but she had a perfect alibi on the night he got sick. She also passed the lie detector test. And that particular evening was the first time his daughter and other witnesses told us he had exhibited the symptoms that presaged his demise. Thus, whoever did it had to be near him or around him and have access to whatever he was drinking that evening. They would have to slip the toxic substance into his beer unnoticed. Then that same suspect would have to make sure he drank the poison cocktail, a fatal dose delivered without the knowledge of the detective. Now, I'm not an expert on radiator fluid as a mixer, but it would be pretty difficult, if not impossible, to disguise it in sufficient quantities to kill. Yes, it tastes sweet, and it's not like drinking gasoline, for example, but it is noticeable enough to be detected in the quantities sufficient to kill. You cannot dole it out in small doses in order to poison someone slowly. The body flushes it out. If your goal is to kill someone slowly over time, it would be much easier to use a stealthier and old-school poison like arsenic. In fact, I checked with several chemists about the possibility a would-be murderer could disguise the taste of ethylene glycol. They told me perhaps in small doses it would be possible to conceal it in a strong alcoholic drink. But the three to four ounces it would take to kill a man? Simply not plausible. The stuff was too toxic. So given Occam's explicit preference for simplicity expressed in Occam's razor, which explanation makes more sense? 
Which scenario is less complicated and simpler with the fewest number of variables? Exactly, self-administered. And by the way, we checked a discarded beer can found in the kitchen trash. No trace of radiator fluid. Thus, I had a plausible working theory based upon the simplest explanation of the evidence at hand, what I like to call a starting point. It's like locating Polaris or the North Star in the sky and reorienting your path by moving towards it. Once you have a good sense of direction, the landscape starts to make sense. It's the most basic and elemental technique of a sound investigation. Find the pieces of the puzzle that fit, assemble a picture, however incomplete, of what you do and don't know, and then gather more clues. Of course, this technique of supposition has flaws. Invariably, it can fuel speculative thinking and often unverifiable assumptions. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with theorizing, a good investigator tries to remain both flexible and open-minded. It's pretty easy to let a hunch prompt you to ignore or even avoid the contradictory evidence. It's a weakness of the human mind to become overly attached to a personal theory. It's a phenomenon social scientists call confirmation bias, amassing a set of facts to fit your expectations while purposefully ignoring any evidence that challenges your assumptions. Still, if you're mindful of not getting too stuck on a single explanation of what happened, painting a speculative picture is an essential tool to effectively figuring a case out. So I had a dead cop lying on a gurney in Yuma Memorial with blood so toxic his organs were practically pickled. I didn't have a single shred of evidence to substantiate threats against his life. And his wife told us that just before he became sick, he was futzing around in the garage rummaging through the trunk of his car. But of course, like many cases, the simplest explanation was also the most daunting. I didn't have a toxicology report. I didn't have any direct evidence that he had indeed drunk the fluid. And I didn't have any actual witnesses who had seen him drink the alleged suicidal cocktail before his demise. So I decided to interview his wife again. I wanted to establish a timeline. The idea was to determine the interval between when he was in the garage and when he started getting sick. Our talk was productive. She was sharp and attentive, answering each question thoughtfully. She gave us a time when the detective entered the garage, an interval between when he left and began to exhibit symptoms. So with her help, we were able to establish a timeline from exactly when he was proximate to the car and when the first symptoms of the illness emerged. According to what she told us, it took roughly an hour, give or take a few minutes, between his visit to the garage and the onset of the illness. 
a period of time that will provide critical support for my theory that he possibly poisoned himself. It was just the dot I needed to connect a few more. So after we talked to every possible person and assembled the scant medical evidence, we created a rudimentary timeline of events. We collated it into a working file and then began the task of digging deeper. Another step in the investigative process that also adheres to my philosophy of detective work. Search for context. What do I mean? Facts don't exist in a vacuum, meaning there's a world of scientists, technology experts, and others who can help shed light on what you know, and more importantly, what you don't. And it's the search to augment facts with context that can play an important role in successfully completing an investigation. In this case, we knew how much time elapsed between when he was rummaging in the trunk and when he first became symptomatic. The timeline provided an important clue. We could now compare the scientifically determined lapse between a dose of radiator fluid and symptoms and the actual amount of time it took for the detective to take ill after he entered the garage. If the two time periods correlated, we had a better factual basis for assuming he poisoned himself. Again, it might not be definitive proof, but the comparison would at the very least broaden our understanding of what might have occurred by providing relevant and meaningful context. So I wrote to Union Carbide, the manufacturer of ethylene glycol, the primary chemical found in antifreeze. I asked him exactly how long it would take for a person who had drunk the amount missing from the bottle to exhibit symptoms of toxicity. The company was helpful. They wrote back quickly with a definitive answer. One hour. And even more pertinent, a company chemist estimated it would take exactly three hours for organs to begin shutting down. Within three hours, the chemist concluded, the person would lose consciousness, lapse into a coma, and without an antidote, die. The timing was perfect. It matched the progression of the detective's condition almost to the minute. If he had indeed drunk antifreeze, science predicted his transition from asymptomatic to death within minutes. The next piece of context came from the Union Memorial doctor. He told us about a special test available in Washington, D.C., which could determine if there were residual traces of ethylene glycol in the cells of the body, even if the subject was deceased. So we forwarded tissue samples to the laboratory and again got a hit. He had indeed ingested radiator fluid. However the substance got into his body, the primary ingredient of antifreeze is ultimately what killed him. Of course the evidence, as strong as it was, couldn't tell us what was going on in his mind. 
we didn't or couldn't know what the man was thinking. Yes, we had an inkling based on the information gathered from friends and colleagues. They all agreed he was a bit delusional about the risks of his job, but they also told us that it seemed to be a harmless neurosis, nothing more than cop braggadocio, about as common among police as a cold. So what exactly could I do? Referring back to Occam's razor, I looked for the simplest explanation based upon the evidence. Our detective has a bit of an ego problem. He wants his peers to believe he is a heroic cop constantly flaunting danger. He brags about the risks of the mean streets, but hasn't yet encountered a perp that matches his bluster. He tells tall tales of big busts and nefarious crime bosses, but none of his actual exploits match his histrionics. So to bolster his rep, he fabricates mortal threats, recounts stories about how his life is imperiled by a suspect. Maybe a kingpin drug dealer, or a homicidal maniac, or a vengeance-seeking numbers man whose operation he took down with a death-defying bust. But how does he substantiate this fiction? What can he do to make the harrowing tales of both bravery and malice seem real and convincing? Well, a self-inflicted gunshot wound is messy and dangerous, and also not easy to stage. Obviously, a beating presents the same problems. Awkward and potentially dangerous. But drinking some poison, that might work. Given the evidence, it's not unreasonable to suppose that this wannabe hero drinks some poison to show his friends that he's living the life he purports to. The toxin would act slowly enough, he believes, so he would have time to drink the antidote before the symptoms overwhelm him. Maybe he even takes a trip to the emergency room to heighten the drama. Or maybe just gets sick enough to prompt the kind of worry and concern that would give his friends and colleagues pause. I mean, just minutes before he lost consciousness, he was babbling about a $50,000 contract on his life. But something goes wrong. The self-administered dose overwhelms him. His body can't handle it, and he becomes disoriented and incapacitated before he can take an antidote. The plan goes too well. Death overtakes him before he can save himself. His mind loses clarity too soon. His inflated ego and plan for the providential affirmation die together. A mortal confluence of an insecure psyche, lack of ingenuity, and bad timing that culminated in death.
It's a terrible tale if true, but it was also the only explanation I had. I did consult a police psychiatrist about the detective's state of mind before his death. I handed over all the evidence we'd gathered during our investigation. The doctor concurred with my analysis. He concluded that the detective had developed a level of constant paranoia, which may have been the precursor to a more severe mental illness, all precipitated by the pressure he felt to fulfill unrealistic or imaginary work expectations. Sadly, because I didn't have concrete evidence to prove my hypothesis, the medical examiner ruled the death undetermined. Meaning he couldn't classify it in one of the four primary causes of death, homicide, suicide, accident, or natural causes. We were able to tell the family what killed him, but not why. And frankly, I didn't want to share my theory. How would I explain to his grieving wife her husband intentionally drank antifreeze in a misguided attempt to fashion himself into a hero? No good way that I could think of. The hard part is I don't know for sure what happened. I'm not privy to the thoughts of a dead man. My hypothesis was all supposition, theories that don't hold weight in the court of law. I had conjured a possible explanation that would cause more harm than good. And therein lies a common dilemma of policing. The truth is not always welcome or even cathartic. Occasionally, you uncover realities so ugly and truisms so raw that you want to turn the rock back over and bury them back into the good earth forever. It's an often overlooked aspect of being a cop. Human nature beguiles us. It confounds our sense of logic and comity. Its hidden potential and dark intimations are sometimes impossible to stomach let alone comprehend. Most of us don't want to know. In fact, many of us don't have to. But if you want to be a cop, it's part of the job. I never talked to his daughter or shared my suspicions with his family. What good would it have done? The last thing I wanted to do was besmirch the character of a man already in his grave. But I still think about the case, perhaps in part due to my lifelong curiosity about human nature. Whatever motivated the detective, he took it with him. Whatever rationalization he might have conjured to justify drinking antifreeze will remain forever unknown. That's the real truism about human nature every observant cop learns. The hard truth about who we are that applies to almost everyone. We are all capable of behaviors beyond our comprehension. The problem is, most of us don't know it.
Thank you for joining us for The Land of the Unsolved, The Poison of the Mind. This is a chapter from the Book of Cop, a testament to policing that works. If you're interested in hearing more stories about policing in Baltimore City, please check out Amazon.com, where you can find the Book of Cop and the other two books that Stephen and I have authored on policing. Please feel free to share your thoughts about this case and check our Facebook page and website, landoftheunsolved.com, for new episodes or to suggest a case for us to investigate. If you like our work, consider supporting this podcast by clicking on the support button on our anchor.com podcast page. Thank you for joining us for the Land of the Unsolved.